Jesus was performing some astounding miracles on a rather regular basis. One of the definitions of a miracle is that they are unexplainable. They are contrary to anything that we know by our experience. They are not explainable by science. They are outside of our experience of knowing. So Jesus would do these miracles, provide sight for those that were blind, Ability to speak for those that were dumb. And there was a lingering question of which these miracles were serving as a sign. And that is, how could he do that? How could Jesus do what he did? That question is at the center of our text this morning. How did Jesus do what he did? Notice with me Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 and 23. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, that's Jesus, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? Jesus had just performed a remarkable miracle of of healing. But this miracle is recorded for us in the briefest fashion possible. All we are told is that a demon-oppressed man was blind, mute, brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. We don't know who the man was. We don't know how long he was demon-oppressed. We don't know who brought the man to Jesus. We don't know about the man's faith. We know nothing other than here is a man who could not see and could not speak because he was demon oppressed and he encounters Jesus and now he can see and now he can speak because of the oppression being Removed. That's what we know. The question is, how did Jesus do that? There are three responses to this miracle. The response of the crowd, the response of the Pharisees, and then Jesus in his response to the crowd and the Pharisees. So let's look at these three responses together this morning. First, the response of the people. When they saw this miracle, they were amazed. Matthew 12, 23. And all the people were amazed. They were astonished. This is a very rare word for amazed. It's found only here in our text. They were being amazed uh, repeatedly, but this is a word to be just completely confounded. The people were incredibly struck by what Jesus had just done. And so they asked the question. It's the right question. It's the appropriate question. It's what Jesus wants them to ask. And that is, is this the son of David? Is this the Christ? Is there going to be anyone who comes that is going to be able to do anything greater than this or anything even like this? Is he the Messiah? Is he, is that, is he that prophet, priest, and king who the scriptures speak concerning. We want to focus this morning on the response of the Pharisees. The response of the Pharisees was to seek to dissuade the people from believing that Jesus is the Messiah. The response of the Pharisees was far different from that of the people. The Pharisees heard the people's questions. Notice chapter 12, verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, the it refers 
to the question of the people. Can this be the son of David? As the people are discussing this, obviously considering the claims of Jesus Christ, concerning who he said he was, concerning the power that was just displayed, they are turning to one another and say, can this really be the Christ? Now the Pharisees hear the people talking among themselves and asking among themselves, could this really be the Christ? The Pharisees want to dissuade them from believing that Jesus is the Christ. They want them to come to the conclusion that no, Jesus is not the Christ. So the Pharisees seek to dissuade the people from believing in Jesus. How do they do that? By saying that he does this not because he is the Christ, but he is able to do this by the power of the evil one. Notice verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. This is a notable miracle. The people are so confounded by what has just taken place that he says the only way that Jesus is able to do this is by the power of the most powerful demon. Only the most powerful demon would be able to overcome these lesser demons that caused this man not to be blind and not to see. They said that so the people would not believe that this power came from God. So there was the choice. Did this power come from God? Or did this power come from the most powerful demon out there? That was the choice. Jesus responds to the Pharisees' allegations to expose their evil thoughts. Now what we're going to do is work through this text, and I ask you to stay with me, because this text has raised a lot of doubts and concerns in people's minds. From this text comes what is referred to as the unpardonable sin, and uh, has caused a lot of heartache and grief in the hearts and lives of people. Have I ever committed this sin? And can my sin be forgiven? Etc. 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 So we really need to understand clearly what is going on in this passage. And as we work through it, when we get to the end, I think it will make good sense to you, and I hope it alleviates some fears and concerns. But let us begin. And the first thing that we have to be aware of is verse 25. Jesus is aware of the insincerity of the Pharisees. Notice verse 25. Very important word. Knowing their thoughts. Knowing their thoughts. It does not say, knowing what they said. He does know what they say. He does know that they said that Jesus does this by the power of Beelzebul. He knows that that's what they said. But more than that, he knows what they think. And what is very important here is they don't think that for a moment. They don't believe that for a moment. That is a smokescreen. He knows that they are out to destroy him. Notice Matthew 12, 13 through 15. Matthew 12, 13 through 15. Another notable miracle that Jesus did. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. 
And the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. So the, the Pharisees went out and they said, how can we, how can we get rid of Jesus? How, how, what, what can we do? He keeps doing all these miracles. But notice verse 15. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all. And then in the context, this, is, this healing takes place as well. Verse 15 says, Jesus is aware. Jesus is aware that these Pharisees are out to destroy him and that they've conspired together. They've come up with a plan on how to discredit Jesus. He's doing these great miracles. What answer do we have to this? We can't deny what's happening. It's right there. Here's a man who has a withered arm and it's stretched. It's obvious. Jesus did that. So, what are we going to say to that? How are we going to refute that? Well, the Pharisees developed a plan. That strategy was started in the past and now is going to be applied much more broadly. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, starting with verse 32. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. You see, this isn't the first occasion in which they contributed, attributed the works of Jesus to the prince of demons. What had happened is that somebody came up with that idea and it's almost like you know in a in a campaign today people are given uh talking points of what you're to say and how you're to respond to certain questions and uh people do that jehovah's witnesses have come up with talking points and how to respond to what christians are going to say about the deity of the lord jesus christ if you Quote John 1 1, they know that John 1 1's in the Bible. So, how do you respond to that? We do the same thing as Christians. We'll have courses on evangelism. And if somebody says to you that they don't believe in this or this, what do you say to them? Well, the Pharisees got together and they said, Well, what are we going to do? These miracles obviously aren't going to stop. So, what are we going to do when Jesus performs a miracle? And everyone looks at him and says, why, he must be the power of God because no one can do such things. Their plan? Obviously we can't deny it. It's happened. And obviously it's a notable miracle. Nobody else is doing what he's doing. So, it must be the most powerful demon that is at work here. And we'll say that Jesus is in cahoots with the most powerful demon. That's how he's able to cast out these lesser demons. Jesus knows their plan. Jesus knows what they are about. Jesus knows what they are up to. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus says nothing to the accusation. He says nothing about 
what the Pharisees have just said when they say that this is done by the power of the evil one. In chapter 12, Jesus decides that he's going to address it. Now, this is becoming widespread. Now, this is becoming almost normative in the way in which the Pharisees are responding to Jesus. So, Jesus needs to address it. It's like Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. Proverbs 26, 4 says, Answer not a fool in his folly, lest you be like him. Verse 25 says, Answer a fool in his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. It's time for Jesus to put the Pharisees in their place. It's now time for Jesus to demonstrate that there's an answer to this. And there's a fallacy in believing that Jesus is doing this by being in cohorts with the evil one. So Jesus responds to the Pharisees' accusation. Jesus is going to refute it with four arguments. And then he's going to make a very startling declaration. And it's really the declaration that we're most concerned about this morning. But we'll look at the four arguments. Jesus refutes the accusation that he is doing these miracles by the power of Satan by offering four arguments. First, it would make no sense for Satan to consistently oppose himself. Matthew 12, 25, and 26. Nor in their thoughts he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will not stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself, how then will his kingdom stand? Jesus is consistently opposing the works of the evil one. If he is opposing the works of the evil one, but is in cohorts with the works of the evil one, it is illogical to think that anything good is going to be coming out of that. Jesus is not pointing people to the evil one. Jesus is pointing people to God. Number two, there is nothing intrinsically evil about casting out demons. Matthew 12, 27. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Now, there were people that were seeking to do exorcisms in the time of Christ. And we could look at other portions of Scripture in which other people are doing exorcisms in this particular period of time. What is most notable is none of them are able to do the kinds of things that Jesus is doing. No one is, in Israel has seen this kind of, kind of thing. Okay, What Jesus is doing, I would liken it today to there are people that are quote unquote doing healings today. They're not doing what Jesus did. They're not They're not dealing with people who were born blind all their lives and all of a sudden instantaneously they heal. They're not doing that stuff. Jesus simply says, how are your sons doing these lesser things? There's nothing intrinsically evil about casting out Satan. That's that's what your followers are trying to do. Number three, if Jesus is casting out Satan by the power of God, then Satan is being conquered. Verse 28 and 29, but if by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If I'm able to do this, you have just said that it would take the most powerful demon to be able to do what I just did. If that is true, that it would take the most powerful demon to do what I just did, then the kingdom of God has come unto you because I am more powerful than the most powerful demon. You just backed yourself into a corner. You have just acknowledged that there has never been a display of this kind of power. It would require the prince of the demons to do this. Jesus says, if I then do this, and I do it by the power of God, then the kingdom has come upon you. Verse 29, 
Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man? Then indeed he must plunder his house. Then I must have conquered the evil one. Then I am the Christ. Then I am the King of kings. Then I am the Lord of lords. Argument number four. Whoever is not speaking for Jesus is opposing Jesus. Verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. That's the background. Let's look at the statement, verses 31 and 32. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. As I said, this statement has led to a great degree of concern and heartache and grief on the part of Christians. What does it mean? What is the unpardonable sin? Have you or I committed it? This passage has also led to some strange understandings on the part of some. For example, there are some that read this passage and then come up with a conclusion that Jesus is in some way inferior to the Holy Spirit. Let me read a quotation from D.A. Carson. I think it's very helpful. D.A. Carson, in his commentary on the exposition of the scriptures in the book of Matthew, says this, and I quote, The distinction between blasphemy against the Son of Man and blasphemy against the Spirit is not that the Son of Man is less important than the Spirit, or that the first sin is pre-baptismal and the second post-baptismal, still less that the first is against the Son of Man and the second rejects the authority of Christian prophets. Instead, within the context of the larger argument, the first sin is rejection of the truth of the gospel, but there may be repentance and forgiveness for that, whereas the second sin is rejection of the same truth in full awareness that what is exactly what one is doing, thoughtfully, willfully, and self-consciously rejecting the work of the Spirit even though there can be no other explanation of Jesus' exorcisms than that. For such a sin there is no forgiveness, either in this age or in the age to come, a dramatic way of saying never. End quote. G.C. Burkhauer writes in his work on uh, sin, just simply the, the title sin, and I quote, The Pharisees have been attributing to Satan the work of the Spirit and have been doing so as Jesus makes plain in such a way as to reveal that they speak not out of ignorance or unbelief, but out of a conscious disputing of the indisputable. I love that statement. A conscious disputing of the indisputable. In other words, they know that what they are saying is false. They know that Jesus is not doing this by the power of the evil one. And Jesus knows that they know that he's doing this by the power of God and not the evil one. He knows that they know that this is a smokescreen that they are offering up to try to keep the people from believing in Jesus. That is what is taking place. You see, that's far different from an Apostle Paul who actually goes out and persecutes the church and tries to dissuade people from believing in Jesus and has them actually put to death and is putting people in prison to keep them from believing in Jesus. The difference is that according to the book of Timothy, he does it in ignorance. He does it in unbelief. He does it believing that that's the right thing to do. But God graciously reveals himself to Paul on the road to Damascus. 
And Jesus says to Paul, how long are you going to persecute me? And Paul comes to faith. He does it ignorantly in unbelief. The Pharisees are not acting in ignorance. They are acting in willful rebellion to who Jesus is. The Pharisees are going to pay people. They're going to hire people to lie at Jesus' trial. They're going to pay for false witness. They know. They know. They're they're going to hire people to lie about what Jesus said. That's what they're about. Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. So Jesus then makes this application. First, you will know the true people of God by their fruit. Matthew 12, 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. This he says for the sake of the people and for the Pharisees. Now the people don't know what's going on here. The Pharisees do. Jesus knows what's going on here. And so he says to the crowd, you're going to know whether a person is good or evil by their fruit. Then he addresses the Pharisees, verse 34. You brood of vipers. You snakes in the grass. You who are lying in wait to strike. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus says, all you are doing is revealing the evil of your heart. Your rebellion, your steadfast opposition is now being seen by what you say. That desire to destroy Jesus is so vehement, is so strong, that they are willing to say and do anything to destroy Jesus and to turn the people against him. He said, it is out of your evil heart that these words come. Thirdly, what they are saying is evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And while they are seeking to pass themselves off as good, they are, in fact, evil. Verse 35, the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. Next, the Pharisees are going to be judged for what they say and what they have just said. Notice verse 36. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. He's saying to these Pharisees, You are going to stand before God in judgment this day for what you have just said. Because you know that what you just said you don't even believe. And you understand the implications that if I did this by the power of God, that I am the Son of God, and you willfully have rejected that truth. 
And even more so, you have tried to dissuade those that are being convinced of that truth. You are not with me, you are against me. And being against me, you are on the side of the evil one. For notice verse 38, uh, I guess it is. Uh, no, it's not. Okay, uh, I'm sorry. But then you are on the side of the evil one. So where does this leave us today? How does this passage relate to us? First of all, the unpardonable sin, quote-unquote, is not a failure to believe in Jesus. We, most people, have not believed in Jesus the first time that they were witness to, the first time that they heard the gospel message. It's not to reject Jesus. It's not something that is unique. I mean, what is the work of the Spirit, or what is the work of Jesus? What is that unpardonable sin? What is it to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? It is to seek to refute the unrefutable. To dispute with the indisputable. It is the conscious awareness when one comes to the conclusion as to who Jesus really is, they are convinced in their mind, and they reject it. Now let's unpack this for a minute. I've given myself time to work through this conclusion carefully and slowly. First of all, how does this apply to today? There is a difference today between our period of time and the period of the New Testament. In the New Testament time, it was impossible to deny what Jesus did. Here is a man. He's standing in their midst. He cannot see. He cannot speak. And all of a sudden, he can see and he can speak. Here is a man whose hand is totally withered. And all of a sudden, now his hand can move. You can't deny that. They had only one of two choices that they could come up with. Either Jesus did it by the power of God or he did it by the power of the evil one. That's the only answer they could come up with. Well, today, the common response is either Jesus did these things and he is the son of God or what is the common response is but he didn't really do these things. These are myths. These are stories. These, these are fabrications. These are lies. These are things that we all know Jesus really didn't do, is what the religious teachers of our day say that want to reject the authority of Jesus Christ. You can't believe the Bible. These are stories that are written by people who, who wanted you to believe in Jesus. But these things didn't really happen. We know better than that. We know that people can't do these kinds of things. And so, these are not miracles at all. So today, the false religious teachers seek to discredit Jesus and dissuade people from believing in him as Christ, as Lord, as the Son of God, by saying that he did not perform the miracles at all. They assert that the Bible is full of myths. It's not trustworthy. While at the same time asserting a belief in a historical Jesus, not one that's born of a virgin, not a savior, not a deliverer, but a man who lived a good life, spoke and did good things, was crucified on a cross, but did not rise from the dead. That's the Jesus that the religious 
world of our day and age who denies the authority of Jesus Christ teaches. They believe that there is a historical Jesus, but you have to find him. You've got to boil the New Testament down to the truth of who Jesus really is. I say to you this morning, with the same clarity that Jesus says, that that is a bunch of garbage. And one can readily see that it is a bunch of garbage. It makes no sense whatsoever. First, it makes no sense historically. It doesn't explain the origin of these beliefs. It doesn't explain the tension that existed between the scribes and the Pharisees. If these miracles didn't happen, then what was the reason for the tension between the scribes and the Pharisees? What was it that they kept arguing about? What was it that ultimately put Jesus on the cross? Why was he crucified? It doesn't explain the changes that took place in individuals like Paul, who was a persecutor of the church and now is going to be one that gives his life for the church. It doesn't explain why the crowds were transformed. It doesn't explain why it was that people were following him all over the place if he didn't do the miracles, if he didn't do the healings. How did he get the crowds? Why did they follow him? Why did they worship him? What basis is there historically? But far more importantly, it doesn't make sense logically. If Jesus is not the Son of God, if Jesus is not who he says he is, he is not a good man. He is not a prophet. He is not a doer of good deeds. He is either crazy, self-deluded, or maniacal, or a liar, or what the Pharisees said he was, an evildoer in cohorts with Satan and himself. You can't have your cake and eat it too. Either Jesus is who he says he was, or he's not. But if he's not who he says he was, he's not a prophet. He's not a good man. No. The Pharisees got it right. You got one of two choices. Either he's doing these things by the power of God or he's doing these things by the Prince of Beelzebub. So again, where does that leave us today? First, you can't sit on the fence. Jesus said, either you are for me or against me. Either he is who he said he is or he is not. Either he is God or he is not. If you were here this morning, and you have never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are lost. You have no hope. 
You're without God in this world. You have rejected the one means that Jesus has given to us to be saved. That doesn't mean you cannot be saved. The scripture says, whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But you're faced with a question this morning. Are you going to believe in Jesus or not? I want to remove the second leg of that three-legged stool for you this morning. Don't be a nominal Christian. What I mean by that is a Christian in name only. That takes some of the Bible, but not other parts of the Bible. I'll believe in Jesus, but I don't believe in the virgin birth. I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe he did the miracles. I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe he rose from the dead. No, you don't believe in Jesus. You believe in some caricature of Jesus. A caricature that makes no sense. And quite frankly, I don't understand why anybody who believes in that kind of Jesus worships at all. To me, it's just totally illogical. You're faced with one of two decisions. Either Jesus is who he said he was, and then you should be all out for him, or Jesus is not who he says he was, and you ought to be all out against him. Either you should be trying to convince others, or you ought to be trying to dissuade others. There's no middle ground. There are some people who understand fully that what they are saying in the objections that they raise are in fact untruths. They are in fact smoke screens. Deep down inside, they are aware that they are in opposition to Jesus and they are trying to dissuade others from believing in Jesus when they, in fact, know the truth. It is to those people, Jesus is saying, you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has convicted you. The Holy Spirit has shown you. The Holy Spirit has given you proof that you knowingly, willingly reject. And you will be lost. Now, what's important also to understand is this passage doesn't say that those people can't be saved. It says they won't be saved. And the reason they won't be saved is because they have rejected the very truth that would save them. Notice verse 38. We need to go there. Matthew 12, 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him. This is their response to Jesus. That scathing accusation. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. All we want is some proof. All we want is some way of knowing that you're really who you say you are. Then Jesus goes on, and we're going to look at that next week, saying, man, I've given you all the proof you need. I've given you all the proof you need. This morning, I ask you to be honest with yourself. If you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you sit there and you say to yourself, 
All I need is a little more proof. All I wish is that God would make himself clear to me. I, got, I, I just, if there was just some way that God would speak to me and tell me the truth so I just could know for myself if there were a voice from heaven, if there were a vision, if he would touch me on the shoulder and tell me to believe in him, if he would just reveal himself to me, I'd believe. Jesus said, if they don't believe the law and the prophets, they won't believe even if a person rises from the dead. And of course, Jesus did rise from the dead. If you're sitting here this morning and you say to yourself, I wish that God would make it clear to me. I wish God would just speak to me and tell me who Jesus is. Then realize he did. He has told you who Jesus is. He has told you how to be saved. He has told you that to reject him means everlasting damnation. Are you going to believe his word? Or are you going to reject it? If you've never, ever trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, I plead with you this morning. Come to Christ. And I plead with you to be honest with your own self. The smoke screens, the excuses, the reasons for not believing in Jesus. For on the day of judgment, the, through, the, the, the real intents of your heart will be revealed. In just a moment, I'm going to give you an opportunity to profess the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. Sometimes I ask for people to raise their hands. Other times I don't. There's nothing magical about raising your hand. There is nothing about that that saves you. It's trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior that saves you. But this morning, I want everyone in this room one more time to be confronted with a decision. I want everyone in this room to be fully aware that if this morning I don't choose to believe in Jesus, I am choosing not to believe in Jesus. Nobody's apathetic, nobody's indifferent. You're either on his side or you're not. This morning I invite you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. Let us pray. Our Father, I ask that by your power and your grace you would once again overrule the evil one the one that would cause people not to be able to see and that would keep people from speaking concerning you.
May you bind the evil one this morning. And may you grant unto people the ability to see. May you grant unto people the ability to hear. May you grant unto people the ability and willingness to speak. Lord, may this day, any in this room who have never, ever professed faith in Jesus Christ, may today be that day in which they acknowledge the need of a Savior and trust in Jesus, who is the Son of God, who is able to save them. We ask for your grace in their life this day. Quickly this morning, is there anyone here who wants to place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Maybe you don't understand it all. I'd be happy to talk with you at length, happy to explain it more clearly. But this morning, simply, Jesus is the Son of God and you need a Savior. Is there anyone in this room that wants to make that profession of faith? Would you just quickly raise your hand so I can see it? I will acknowledge it quickly. Anyone? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for the Bible. We thank you for its trustworthiness. We thank you for revealing yourself to us. Bless each one here this day and help us to be a people who gladly profess the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.